So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to read verses 5 and 6, and then we're going to hop over and read verses 20 and 21. We're going to read the parable like we did last week, the section of the parable, and then we will read Jesus' own exposition of his parable as he explains it to his disciples. Matthew 13, 5 and 6 says, Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Verse 20, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is God's word. You guys may have a seat. So consider this scenario. I'm going to paint a picture. You approach a friend with a little bit of fear and a little bit of trembling because you have decided that today is the day that you are going to try to present a full-on beginning-to-end gospel presentation. And if you've ever been there, you know you're approaching it with fear and trembling and much prayer because it's, 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 it's a nervous thing. And so, however the situation comes about, you begin to speak to them, and you speak to them about the holiness of God, and you speak to them about the fallen nature of all men, and, and this is the, the part, the, the, the time where usually we're kind of, you know, we're wondering, I hope this is not offensive, I hope this doesn't turn them away as if they could ever be further away than dead in trespasses and sin. So we're, we're kind of scared about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, but as you speak, their, their eyes begin to well up with tears, their, their lip begins to quiver. You can tell that, that they're responding, they're, they're hearing what you're saying. And then you explain to them the good news that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who's come to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin and sinners on behalf of sinners by way of His perfect life, His sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus has done it once for all it's finished on behalf of sinners. And, and then you see they begin to smile with, with joy. They're, they're sort of delighted at what you're saying because that's, that's the good news of the gospel. And then you finish. By this point, you're, you're sort of uh, you're gaining a little bit of Holy Spirit boldness. You're, you're feeling the authority of the Word of God kind of urge you on. And so you lovingly, as a friend command them at that point that the Bible says that now you must repent and trust in Jesus. You have to repent and believe the gospel to be saved. 
and throw it out there. And they grab you. They pull you close and they wrap their arms around your neck and they're, they're crying and they, they say, pray with me, help me to understand this. I, how would you respond to that? How would you, how would you deal with that? How would you respond if someone that you had shared the gospel with told you they believed? They said, this is the greatest news I've ever heard. I want to come to church with you. I want to know more about it. I want to read the whole Bible. I'm going to start reading tonight. I want to learn more about this gospel. But think about Christianity in general. How have we generally responded to those or treated those who seem ecstatic and delighted about the things of God? What is the typical reaction to the raised hand at the end of an evangelistic service? You know, you get your eyes closed and your head bowed and, the head bowed and someone raised their hands. How do we typically react? Well, the answer is, we've all been there probably, the answer is we act like it's a done deal. It's finished. We, 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 we're quick to just pronounce the new birth on them. It's finished. It's done. We herald their salvation. To everyone around us, we tell them, now what you need to do is go straight home and call somebody right now and tell them. Tell them what the Lord's done in your life. Make it public. And as a matter of fact, open up your Bible and turn to the back of your Bible and write down the date. Because one of these days, Satan's going to come to you. He's going to try to tempt you and tell you you're not really saved. And you show him that date because Satan is afraid of dates or something. So you're going to show him that date and you're going to remind him you've been saved. Now based on what the Bible teaches, I think these things might be some of the most harmful things that we could do to a person. I believe that this has caused countless numbers of people to die, go off into eternity without Christ in their sin and yet confident because a pastor or an unknowing Christian told them, you're saved. Congratulations, you're a part of the family of God. You're in. Wait, wait, did I hear, did you say, did you say what I think you said? Because if you said that correctly, you're in. That's what we've often said. At Axis Church, we don't, we no longer immediately just welcome children in, into fellowship or, or to, the, to the Lord's table. We don't immediately welcome new professors of the faith or new newcomers to fellowship. We, we don't just take a person's word and say, well, hey, if you say it, I mean, there, there's nothing more we can do. I guess you're in. Now, we've done that in the, in the past to our chagrin. And, and this passage that we're looking at today is one of the reasons why we now look at it differently and we approach it a little more cautiously. So, we're going to look at this passage the same way as we did last week. We're going to look at the parable. And we're going to look at how Jesus exegetes His parable parable and then we'll look at some application so beginning with under the first heading we're going to look at the rocky ground in verses five and six the rocky ground we see first verse five other seeds fell on rocky ground other seeds in contrast to the seeds we saw last week that fell on the pathway soil you know, the pathway was beaten down. It had been trodden by people walking for years and years, and it might as well have been a sidewalk. It might as well have been pavement. The seed just bounces across it and lays on top. Now, these are different seeds. These are other seeds, but they're not a different kind of seed. 
They could have came from the same handful as the seeds went out. They came from the same bag. They're other seeds, but they're still the same kind of seed. He's throwing them out and they fall on rocky ground. Now the rocky ground is not dirt with rocks in it or gravel. Typical in this region of the world, you find large areas of limestone underneath the surface of the ground. So this would have been a, a big area of hard, solid rock. Sometimes it, this rock is even exposed. It sticks out of the ground. But the picture here is, is rocky ground. There's a thin layer of dirt. And underneath the dirt, there's a layer of solid rock. So that's the rocky ground. Then we see... Continuing in verse 5, the rocky ground explained. He says, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. So there was some soil, just not much soil. Now remember the purpose of the soil was to give the seeds all that they need to grow. They got to have moisture, they got to have heat, they got to have air and other nutrients that come from the soil. They find maybe a little of that. They find something of what is necessary, just not much. There's not much soil. Again, a thin layer of soil on top of solid rock. And then we see a quick response from these seeds in verse 5. They did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. Immediately. Straightway, at once, in a moment, very quickly. This is really fast growth, a rapid response. This is a prompt return on the sowing. This is what you're looking for. Now, it's not meant to be taken literally as if as soon as the seed hits the ground, you know, a seed or a plant sprouts up because plants don't work that way. This would just be quick. In the grand scheme of planting seeds, these seeds came out quick. They came up immediately. And then we see, continuing in verse 5, the reason for this quick response. Why would they grow up so quickly? And this is key. This is so important to the whole parable. Why did they grow up quickly? Immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. That's the reason. So it was because the soil was shallow that they sprang up quickly. Because they had no depth of soil, that they sprang up quickly. Now think about it. Why would this be the case? Why would shallow soil with rock underneath it cause a plant to spring up quickly? Well, if you have shallow soil, you have a little bit of dirt that's going to have some moisture in it. And that moisture can't drain down deep into the soil like it's supposed to. So it's going to sit there for a little bit. And it's on top of the rock. It's going to get a little warmer than the deep down soil, so you've got a little bit of moisture with a little bit of added heat. You, you have in this shallow soil on top of the rock the perfect atmosphere for rapid growth. This is exactly what you want if you want plants to grow is good moisture, good heat. This is what is here. If you go into a greenhouse, more than likely you're not going to find very many cold greenhouses. They're going to be warm, they're going to be humid because you want Moisture and heat. So, on the surface level, at the onset, very quickly, this ground, this, this shallow soil is 
perfectly suited for quick growth, rapid growth. It's just quick. Any farmer, any gardener, any, any greenhouse worker is going to look at these seeds and he's going to be thrilled at what he is watching here. These tiny sprouts are going to shoot up and they're going to be quick to assume these are the most healthy. These have the most potential. This is the cream of the crop right here. I'm going to remember this spot. Every year when I sow, I'm going to have to remember this area. This is the area to watch for on the surface. The reason for the quick response is shallow soil. In the beginning of verse 6, we see a quick demise. Verse 6 begins with the word, but. That's a contrasting word. So in contrast to the fact that, well, it looked really quick. It looked like it was going to be great. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. Now, when we talk about the rising of the sun, we're... We're talking about two different things signified. Number one, the rising of the sun is, is the progression of time. We gauge time by the sun. So time has passed. The day goes by. The second thing that's signified by the rising of the sun is it's a rise in temperatures. When the sun goes up, it gets hotter. As the day progresses, it gets hotter. So the sun rose, time progressed, the temperatures rose, and these plants are scorched they're they're burned up the heat of the sun became too much for these little sapling plants now a question that comes to mind at this point is was it because of the sun is it it was the sun the cause of the demise of these plants well when we continue in verse 6 we find out that's not the case verse 6b we see the reason for the quick demise it says and since they had no root, they withered away. It doesn't say since the sun was too hot. All plants need the sun. So it wasn't the sun that was the problem. The problem was they had no root. They withered away. Now, remember back in chapter 12, verse 10, we saw the man with the withered hand. And this is the same word. It's dr dr dried up, moisture's gone, shriveled away. That's the same thing that's happened with these plants. Moisture is absolutely critical to the life of a plant. And so is heat. But if you have too much heat and not enough moisture, it's going to evaporate the, the moisture and they're going to dry up. They're going to die. And so they withered away since they had no root. They had no substantial, life-sustaining, healthy root system. That's why they died. No root. Now again, think about this. Why would that be the case in this soil? You've got shallow soil. Got a little bit of water, plenty of heat, the plant shoots up. Well, as the day progresses, it gets hotter and the sun, it begins to dry up that moisture, begins to evaporate some of the moisture. The plant uses some of the moisture. The moisture is gone at some point, but the sun's not gone and the heat's not gone. Now, at this point, a normal plant sends its roots down deeper into the soil because that's where the water goes. It runs down into the soil. A normal plant sends its roots down deeper. Well, this plant is blocked by rock. The rock prevents the roots from going any deeper. It can't get any more water. It's already used up all that it has. The plant dies of dehydration. So whatever water intake the plant did have was limited to the once helpful shallow 
soil above the rock. The sun did not create the rock. It only revealed the rock. The sun did not cause the death of the plant. It just revealed what was actually happening below the surface. Here's a very interesting point, and, and take note of this. You're, you're probably already in your mind realizing the problem with the, the rocky soil. It was the fact that the dirt was shallow that caused the plant to sprout up and go quickly, and it's that same fact that the dirt was shallow that caused the plant to die. In other words, shallow soil for a moment, for a time, seemed to have everything necessary for healthy growth and even, even produced what would have been thought to be the cream of the crop. But that same soil that looked so healthy at first now proves to be nothing more than the facilitator of death. It was the problem the whole time. It wasn't good, it was bad. It looked great, but it was the problem. So the summary of the parable, the seeds fall on the rocky ground, the ground's already rocky, the, the sun and the seeds don't have anything to do with the soil, except that they fall on the soil. It's already rocky. The seed sprouts quickly because the ground is shallow. The sun rose. Because the ground is shallow, the seed dies. Now, how does Jesus exegete his parable? Well, the second heading, we move to verse 20 and 21. The superficial heart. The superficial heart. Verse 20, beginning at the beginning of the verse, as for what was shown on, sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it. So here we have the reception of the word. This is one who hears the word. They're not deaf. They're not off in a deep, dark jungle in Africa somewhere where they never hear the name of Jesus. This is someone who hears the same word, the same word of the kingdom, the same gospel of the kingdom that every other person hears. The, the, the rocky ground here hears the same word as the thorny ground here, as the pathway here, as the good soil here. They all hear the same word. And it says he immediately receives it. Again, same word, quickly, straightway. He takes it right in rapidly. He loves this word. So he hears the word. And then we see the manner of his reception. It says he immediately receives it with joy. With joy, that is with gladness, with delight, with, with excitement, with happiness. He's not reluctant. This is not a person who's argumentative. This is not a person who's trying to haggle and bargain with you about this doctrine or that doctrine or, or well, I'll come to Christ on these terms or that term. There's no reservations. They just, they love it. They latch onto it. They grab it and they receive it immediately with joy. In verse 21, then we see the root of the problem again. It begins with the word yet. This is another contrast word. Contrasting with the idea that when this person receives the word with joy, that appears to be very positive. Yet, verse 21, he has no root in himself. No root in himself, that is in his heart, in his inner being, in the inner man. There's no real, substantial connection to the life source. That's what a root is. It connects to the the nutrients, the source of life. 
Now, what is the source of spiritual life for a Christian? It is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is our source for life. He even said, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. You must be connected to Christ to have life. In John 15, especially the, the beginning of the chapter, there's all of this language about discipleship and about being connected to Christ, and the language is this same botanical language. He says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. He's, he's a vine. John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That is, apart from being connected to the vine, which is down into the ground, connected to the life source, the vine is the source of life. You can do nothing. You have no life. A branch laying on the ground, broken off from the vine, is not a branch. It's a stick. It's a twig. You have no life in you. So Jesus Christ says, I am the ultimate life source. And we abide in Him, and you continue reading in John 15, through regular communion with Him through the Word. Abiding in His Word. Abiding in His Word through prayer, through the sacraments, through all of the means of grace that the Holy Spirit has given us. This is how we commune with Christ. Through fellowship with the local church. Through worship. All these things. This is how we abide, how we connect to the life source. So what do we learn about the rocky ground here when it says he has no root? Not some roots, not a little bit of roots, no roots. We learn he had no connection to Christ. He's never been born again. He's never been saved. He heard the word. He received it with joy, with gladness, with delight. He loved it, but he had no root. The problem was not, well, he just, he just took it too fast. The problem was he never had a root to begin with. And so we see, continuing in verse 21, we see a short-lived conversion. It says, but endures for a while. Literally, he temporarily exists. Now that's important because in the English Standard Version especially, when we read he endures for a while, we tend to read it like this. He has no root in himself, eh, but he makes it a good distance. And that's not what it means. It, we, we read it like it's someone who's holding their breath in some kind of a, a world record competition. He doesn't quite go as far as he thought he could. But this is, this is not a person who realizes they're up against the clock, like they're trying to endure. It's not like he endures for a while, but it's better translated, he is only temporary. That's the New American Standard. He's only temporary. He's only around for a little bit of time. He's only around for a while. Now again, endures for a while. Is that a short while? Is that a long while? We don't know. We just know that temporary is not eternal. Temporary, finite, is not infinite. So we don't know if this was 40 years or 40 days, or, or 3 hours, we don't know. All we know is that it's a short while. It's not eternal. So it's a short-lived conversion. And then the next thing we see in verse 21, the heat of adversity endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word. 
Now we've got a couple words, and I'm going to add something to this. Tribulation, that is affliction, that is oppression, literally squeezing, crushing. That's what the word tribulation means. This is suffering due to the pressure of circumstances, or it can also be an antagonistic person. But it could just be the circumstances of the world are, are, are causing pressure. Persecution literally means to pursue or follow, to chase after. So this is, this is a more direct oppression from a person to, to drive away someone. So uh, one commentator in putting these two terms together and making the distinction says, tribulation is a general term for suffering which comes from the outside. Persecution is deliberately inflicted and usually implies a religious motive. So we have tribulation which could be just circumstances. Persecution, which is almost always a person has come after you because of your faith. I want to add something to that because in Luke 8.13, he says a time of testing. That's a different word. That time of testing is elsewhere used in the Bible, a trial, a temptation, a putting to proof of your faith. This could be a good thing or a bad thing. It could be a good thing coming from God and it could be a bad thing coming from Satan. We know in James, he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's a good thing. God will bring us into trials to produce steadfastness in us. But we also know when Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness by the devil, Jesus said, You shall not put your, the Lord your God to the test. Same word. It can come from Satan, it can come from God, it could both even be in the same situation. God seeks to test your faith and produce steadfastness, whereas Satan seeks to tempt you to sin, cause you to fall away. So we put this together, tribulation, circumstances, antagonism, persecution directly from a person because of your faith, time of testing, temptation, trial from good or bad. These three terms summarize every aspect of difficulty, trouble, or discomfort that could possibly come on a professor of faith. Anything, you name it, anything that's difficult in your life, and notice he says, on account of the Word. That's important. The difficulty, whatever it may be, is because of the Word. It's because of the Gospel of the Kingdom. It is because they have shown some joy and excitement and delight over the Word, their, their discomfort is directly related to their profession of faith. So this is not, you know, I had a flat tire going down the road the other day. Uh, Lord's just putting me through a test. It's not that. This is not when well, my hot water heater broke. Well, I'm just going through the valley. Pray for me. No, this is not that. It's not even the death of a loved one. As, as terrible as that may be, that's not... What we're talking about here, this is tribulation, persecution, a time of testing that comes on you because of your faith. I'm a Christian, therefore, this situation is more difficult than it would be if I were not a Christian. If I weren't a Christian, this would be easy, it'd be no problem, I would just go with it. But because I'm a Christian, it just makes it so much more difficult. So this could be... Well, my Christian morality requires me to be more honest in my business dealings. Therefore, 
I'm not going to make as much money as I used to make. I've got to clean up the paperwork. This could be standing for God's design for women in the home means, well, I've got to live off of one income instead of two. This could be, as a church, we stand on biblical marriage, therefore we lose tax-exempt status in the future. This could be the fact that I have a biblical worldview of my family means that I have to cut loose some of my hobbies and some of my friends so that I can focus on my family. This could be speaking the truth to someone who is your friend or, or not, and they, they shun you, they walk away. Or this could be possibly in the future or as our brothers and sisters around the world experience, we get together as a church and that means we are either imprisoned or fined or perhaps our taxes are raised because we gather as a church. And, and the list could go on and on and on. I mean, this could be anything. Simply the fact that we are Christians makes it more difficult. We have to understand that being a Christian and, and living out a Christian worldview will at some point, if not already, cause us to be living in tribulation and, and, and be persecuted and, and have times of testing. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. And the fact, is, the fact of the matter is, if we were to just say, I'm done with the Christian thing, it would go away. It would be no problem. But because we're Christians, on account of the Word, tribulation, the persecution, the times of testing persist. So how does the rocky ground here respond? Well, we see a quick demise. It says he immediately falls away. Again, straightway, he literally, he stumbles. He, he takes offense. The tribulation, the persecution, the testing, it does not push him on to greater faith. It does not push him to persevere. It does not bring about steadfastness of faith. It trips him up. It's offensive to him. He stumbles and immediately he falls away. He's done. As quickly as he responded with joy, he's turned away. Now again, a question that we have to ask is, was it the tribulation? Was it the persecution? Was it the, the time of testing that caused him to fall away? Well, no. The answer is no. We, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are living through this stuff every single day. And their faith is strengthened. The church is strong in other nations. It's not those things. It is the fact that this tribulation, this persecution, these times of testing revealed the truth about his heart. There was no connection to Christ. There was, he was never truly born again. He had no life source, no root in himself. So here, here is a summary statement. This person had a temporary source for temporary superficial, surface-level spirituality that was facilitated by special and yet ultimately damning circumstances. I'll read it again. This person, the rocky ground here, had a temporary source for temporary, superficial, surface-level spirituality that was facilitated by special, very special, and yet ultimately damning circumstances. Now, how is this not exactly descriptive of what we are seeing in American evangelicalism now? How is this not exactly what we're watching happen in our culture? 
In the 1800s, early 1800s, you've got very staunch Armenian, even semi-Pelagian preachers who would work congregations up into an emotional frenzy. Come down and you sit on the anxious bench, the mourner's bench, the, the very beginnings of our altar call. They come down, they sit on the front, and they, they get in their faces, and they, they, they egg them on over and over and over until finally they, in a moment of passion, they make a profession of faith. Boom, got one. Boom, got one. They, they calculate their numbers, write it down, send it over to their buddies. Guess how many professions of faith I had at my revival? Okay, then we travel along the timeline a little bit. We have our large evangelistic crusades. We get a crowd of people together. You large crowds of people, you get them worked up, you get them to raise their hand, get them to sign their card. They do it, you count your numbers. You get preachers who yell and rant and rave at congregations. They, you get them worked up into emotional frenzy and at the end of the service if they don't respond correctly you make sure to remind them of that one guy you heard of who didn't respond correctly and he left and he got into a car wreck on the way home and died and went to hell therefore you don't want to be that guy so in order to to sear off to cauterize the 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 uh, the option of that happening well you just need to respond properly now now now's the time that you want to respond so that that doesn't happen We've got vacation Bible school services where little children are encouraged to invite Jesus into their hearts. Pray this prayer after me because, you know, if you don't, you're going to go to hell. But if you say this prayer after me, you won't go to hell. Of course, we have seeker-driven worship services filled with mind-numbing, chest-thumping music, lights, get people into an emotional frenzy, plant fake converts in the service to give the impression that many are making a decision for Christ. Why don't you? They use some sort of a ad populum argument. Everybody's doing it. Why don't you? Many are coming. Why don't you? All of these things are nothing more than man generating the perfect circumstances for a quick response and it works. It's worked for years for that purpose. But what have we seen as the fruit of these things? The majority, not all, the majority of these professors from these venues are shallow, superficial professors who trip up, stumble, fall away at the first sign of trouble. First sign of persecution, first sign of testing, they're gone. Or they continue to profess their faith, they just mold that faith like a, like a wax nose to fit the culture and to fit their fleshly desires. That way they can still profess to be a Christian. Their Christianity just looks like non-Christianity. They look like the world. So these, these superficial, stony ground hearers, usually the type to follow the crowd, usually the type to go with their emotions above and beyond their intellect, they prove to be fruitless, false believers who are never really born again. They just did something in a moment of passion. They made a decision for Christ, whatever that is. They prayed to receive Christ, whatever that is. They asked Jesus into their hearts. Again, whatever that means. But they were never born again of the Spirit of God. The Bible talks about being born again of the Spirit of God. Born from above. They've never been convicted of sin, never been broken over their sin, never been brought to repentance, never urged to bow themselves to the King of Kings, never forced to cast themselves at the mercy of a Savior. None of that. It's a decision. Why don't you do it? Everybody else is doing it. Why don't you do it? 
You can do this now. You don't want to be that guy who wrecks. Just do it now. Just go ahead and do it now. It's not salvation. That's the rocky ground hearer. Now, for application. This application is definitely compressed. Um, it's still long, but it's compressed. Um, so I've got three headings. A lot of this is questions just to get our minds thinking. If we need to go more into more detail on this stuff, you guys tell me, and I can, we can continue this next week. So the first question that we need to think about, how do I know, hopefully this is, you're thinking this, how do I know that my response to the Word is not because there is, quote, no depth of soil? How do I know? I was saved at an evangelistic crusade. I was. How do I know that I wasn't just heaped up in the frenzy with everybody else? And I just went with them, got out of the aisle, went with them. How do I know? Have you ever experienced an immediate joy over the Word? Have you ever experienced quick, rapid growth from what you're studying in the Word? Are you, are you currently, or have you ever made quick, rapid changes in your life based on what you are reading in the Word? If the answer is yes, then you should ask yourself, well, my goodness, how do I know that I'm not a false hearer? How can I tell? Well, here are a few questions to consider. Again, the benefit of this is I get to teach with a lot of questions. <laughs> um, another question, what, what is causing your joy? You say, yes, I have great joy over the Word. What causes your joy? Is it, is it the Word itself? Is the Word by itself filling you with joy as you're made aware of the truth of God and the revelation of God and, and who God is, the, the greatness of God and the glory of God in Christ made manifest to you as you study the Word? Is it a sense of the glory of Christ as you're daily made aware of your own wickedness and sinfulness and you see what God has done to redeem sinners? Is that where your joy comes from? Because we can be sure that any true and lasting joy, if you want the joy that never fades, that never goes away, the joy that's given to us by Christ and, and through His Holy Spirit is a joy in God. Just God. It's a joy that sees in God and in Christ complete and total sufficiency. Not, well, I like God because He does this, or I like God because He does that. It's just simply... God. God is sufficient. This joy that is found when we realize that at one point I was dead where I stood. I turned to the right, turned to the left, backwards, forwards, I was dead. It didn't matter. And because of who God is, His very nature as God the Redeemer, I am now saved. It's a joy lasting Christian joy is a joy in God. Again, have you experienced immediate growth? Or you, do you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm really growing as a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm growing leaps and bounds. I'm just making all these, these changes. Well, what's causing those changes? Why are you changing? What's driving your daily growth? What's the ultimate goal that you have in mind? Is your growth, you say, I'm growing... Is your growth in the knowledge of God in Christ? Is your daily aim to know Christ more or to just learn more? 
Is your ultimate goal to be a super Christian or to see Jesus face to face? Because if your goal is to be a super Christian, you're fighting against yourself because as you grow in true spiritual growth, what's actually going to happen is you're going to realize daily more and more and more how not super you are. You realize how sinful you are, how far away from God you are as you grow closer to God. So if your aspiration is, well, I want to get to the point where I really feel like I'm doing well, you're working against yourself. But the goal is that I'm working to the point where I know Christ, know Christ, know Christ, and then when I breathe my last breath, I then see Him face to face. That's my goal. That's why I pursue this growth. We can be sure that true and lasting growth in Christ will be a growth in the knowledge of God and an experiential relationship with Christ and that growth will result in more joy in Christ. Another question. Say you're having lots of joy. You say you're seeing this growth, these changes. What are the circumstances around these things? What made you initially joyful? Or what makes you initially joyful? What kickstarts your spiritual growth? When you want to grow spiritually, you say, well, I gotta get, hold on, let me get my CD out. This is my, this is my CD here. This is where, this is really gets me going here. You know, let me get number, no, it's not number six. What is it, number five? It's number seven. Number seven is my, my spiritual growth song. Is it a sunrise? Well, I got to get up, I got to see the sunrise because, man, when that sun comes up, I just feel it. And I, and I just feel the Spirit. Or, well, I get to the or. That's emotional manipulation. What's, what are the circumstances? Are you doing things? Are you making changes simply because others are doing them? Others are making these changes. Well, it looks cool. Man, it makes for great pictures, you know? I could put this stuff on the internet. People love this stuff. They're not going to do it, but they love looking at the pictures of it when I live my life by a biblical worldview. Why are you doing it? Or are you acting out of a sense of the greatness of God in Christ? Are you living out your life to please Christ because of what He's done for you? Are you seeking to bring your whole self, heart, mind, and body under the submission of the Word of God? No matter what it looks like, no matter what the world thinks, I will submit to Christ. I will do what Christ tells me to do. Is that, your, is that the circumstance? Another question that we need to ask ourselves. What responses might we have that may be false? If I am responding, how might I know that what I'm doing is false? This is, this is important. Very often, very often, not every time, very often, quick responses and drastic changes are a sign of shallow soil. Quick responses... Drastic changes are a sign of shallow soil. They are a sign of immaturity. They are a sign of being tossed around by your circumstances and by every wind of doctrine. Remember Simon the magician from Acts chapter 8. He heard the gospel. He believed. He jumped on it. He saw the miracles. Hey, how much does it cost for those miracles? Peter says, sorry, you have no part in this. He was already baptized. Sorry, you're done. You, You didn't get it. He's cast out. He's done. You don't see old people jumping around with the culture and making this change and that change and that when, when times get tough. No, they, they buckle down. They're mature. They, they say, hey, it'll pass. I've been through it for years. It'll pass. 
So quick responses, drastic changes are a sign of shallow soil. Contrast Simon the magician to the Berean church that we talked about several weeks ago. They heard what Paul said. They heard it with gladness. But what did they do? They tested everything that he said with the Word of God. We'll receive it. We'll hear it. But we're going to take the time to compare it with the Scripture before we verify you, the apostle, and make sure what you're saying is true. They, they took time. So quick responses, drastic changes are a sign of shallow soil. Jumping on bandwagons is a bad sign. Being overly zealous to challenge others who aren't where you are yet is a bad sign. You say you learn a new doctrine, a new, new way of life in your morning devotion, and by 11 o'clock you're on the phone with the pastor saying we need to bring church discipline on somebody else because they haven't learned it yet. That's not it. That's not how, that, that shows that you haven't grasped what you're reading. That shows you haven't studied the Scriptures well. You haven't seated yourself in them well and you're not acting out of devotion to God and His mercy and His patience. So being overly zealous to challenge others who aren't where you are yet is a bad sign. Um, a focus that's on yourself and not on Christ is always bad. Refusing, I'll put these two together, refusing to understand self-sacrifice and persistence in avoiding hardship on account of the Word. When you're making changes. Well, I'm, I'm going I'm to do this. I just feel like this is, this is God's Word. I'm going to do it. But every decision you make just happens to lead to more and more comfort and benefit. You know, this is the pastor who God just always happens to lead him to the bigger church with the better congregation and the better paycheck. Just, he, God just always leads him there. Always refusing to accept that maybe the Christian life means sacrifice and hardship on account of the Word. These things can be false. Maybe not always. Oftentimes, trusting the Word of God leads into benefits and joy and comfort, but just doesn't seem to line up very often with Christ, what Christ taught us about taking up our cross and following Him. So if this is what your responses look like, jumping on the Word, I'm obeying God, I'm doing what God's leading, but it just happens to be what everybody else is doing. It's very quick. You're fussing at others because they're not doing it and it doesn't bring any sacrifice or hardship, then it might be false. What is the correct response to the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, it is always repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. When we see the horrific nature of our sin and our fallen condition before a holy and righteous God, and we see the glory of Christ as He takes our place as sinners on the cross, we will be filled with hatred toward our sin. And we will be filled with love for Christ and we will turn from that sin and to Christ. That is repentance. Turning from sin and to Christ. Repentance and faith. Now here's a question. Have any of us ever persevered until the end? Raise your hand if you've persevered until the end. None of us have. No one has. So how do we know that the next tribulation, the next persecution, the next test, the next hardship on account of your faith and your response to it is not the one that's going to cause you to trip up and then stumble and then fall away. How do you know? We could probably all name someone who was a believer for years and years and we thought, I want to be like that person, and then they fell away. How do we know it won't be us? We, we cannot act presumptuously. Don't presume upon God. It can't happen to me. 
Make your calling and election sure. Draw near to Christ daily. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are of the faith. Or do you not know this about yourselves, that, that Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? We have to test ourselves. That's heading number one for application. Heading number two. Does this doctrine, this teaching of the rocky ground here, affect the way we share the gospel? And the answer is, it should. As should all of our theology. It should affect the way we share the gospel. What circumstances should we avoid when sharing the gospel or presenting a new doctrine? Okay, don't go straight for emotional appeal. Don't walk up to somebody and ask them, hey, would you like to burn in hell forever? Or would you like to go to heaven and live with God? That's not how you do it. We don't go straight for the emotions. We present straightforward truth. Allow the truth to speak. Present as much Scripture as possible. Begin with the intellect and the mind. Engage the mind and then move to the emotions. Emotions are not bad. God gave us emotions. They're good, but we can't lead with the emotions. Our heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. We can't trust it. What circumstances should we pursue? Any honest conversation? Any time where you know I can present truth, leave the truth out there and let the truth work, do it. Anytime, do it. Now, the very few circumstances are going to be perfect. Acts 2.37, brothers, what must we do? You're probably not going to have those. But, if you can present the truth and let the truth do the talking, do it. What are common responses that do not guarantee good fruit? You share the gospel, somebody gives tears of sadness over their sin. That doesn't mean anything. Judas Iscariot was broken hearted after he betrayed Christ. He wanted to, to take it back. And it wouldn't happen. He took that money and he bought a field and he hung himself and he fell off the rope and busted his guts out over the rocks and he went to hell forever. Tears of sadness don't mean anything. Regret over wrongdoing. That doesn't mean anything. Esau sought repentance with tears and it could not be found after trading his birthright. Excitement over eternal life. Again, who wouldn't be excited about that? Fear over hell. Again, who's not afraid of burning forever? What responses are biblical? Again, you can't stress this enough. This is what we look for. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. In a moment and daily. Repentance and faith. Repentance, a change of mind about sin, not wrongdoing, not my mistakes in my past, not my mess-ups. Sin. Young people, what is sin? Young people, hey, what is sin? What is sin? I can't, I can't hear it. Yeah. Any transgression of the law of God is sin. We don't say, well, I just, I really realize I've, I've messed up. I know I've just made some mistakes in my past, but no. You have transgressed the law of God. Repentance is a change of mind about transgressing the law of God. Naturally, we don't care about transgressing the law of God. Spiritually, it breaks our hearts that we transgress the law of God. So repentance is a turning away from sin and to God for salvation. I would re recommend Jeff Pollard's sermon, Understanding Repentance, 
on our website to understand the inner workings of repentance. Repentance and then faith. Faith. Knowledge, belief, trust. Know the truth based on the Word of God. Believe the truth to be real and historical. And trust this truth, this historical truth, to be sufficient for your salvation. If you believe something wrong and trust it, it's not saving faith. If you believe it and you know it, but you don't trust it, it's not saving faith. And if you trust it and believe it, but what you know is false, it's not saving faith. Repentance and faith, initially and daily. Then what do we do? We share the gospel with them. It looks like they've responded with repentance and faith. What do we do? We watch for repentance. We watch for the fruit of repentance. We watch for a godly life. We watch for the evidence of the Spirit's moving. What does this take? It takes time. Time. Time is the great winnowing fork. It's not something you just say, well, you did it, you're in. It takes time. This is why we don't just bring children under 12, and if it were up to me, it would be higher than that, just children into the, the church and declare, declare them members of the church at four and five years old because they prayed a prayer. Because mom told them, if you ask Jesus into your heart, baby, you'll be saved. We don't do that. Allow them into the church. Are we also going to bring them to church discipline when they're 13 and they start looking at porn? We're going to bring them in front of the church when they're 16 and start dating an unbeliever. If they're a part of the church, we have to be consistent. We need to think about these things. We're not Roman Catholic. We do not believe that we can just pronounce someone regenerate. All we can do is receive a profession of faith, watch their lives, gauge their fruit, and it takes time. We have to seriously consider the ways in which we present the gospel and admit people to fellowship. Judgment must begin with the household of God. Now lastly, an exhortation to believers. Make sure your roots are deep. This is again, similar to other weeks. Abide in Christ. Meet with Christ. Grow in your love for Christ. Grow in grace with Christ. Regular repentance, which requires regular study of the Word and acknowledgement of sin. Regular growth of your faith, which requires studying of God's Word and theology, knowing the depths of theology. We've got to know what we believe before we can believe it. If you're rooted deeply in Christ, if you're grafted into the olive branch, no amount of tribulation, no amount of persecution, no amount of testing can ever pull you from that branch. Jesus loses none of those whom the Father has given to Him. He keeps us close. He, he makes sure we're following Him. He works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure by the power of His Spirit. He who began a good work in you is faithful. He will bring it through to completion. And so as Christians, we simply make sure that our roots are going deeper and deeper and deeper. Let's pray.